This episode features discussions of wartime violence, post-traumatic stress disorder, and bureaucracy that some may find offensive. Listener discretion is advised, especially for children under 13. December 26, 1914, Southern Belgium. Private Archibald Stanley of the English Army stood in his trench, looking out across no man's land. It was cold out, but mercifully dry. The rain had finally stopped and the ground was frozen. No more men would die from mudslides in the trenches. And no more ducking for cover as German bullets and artillery shells rained down. The Christmas truce was holding. Peace had won out. Archibald felt inspired by this show of camaraderie. Perhaps the Allies and the Germans weren't so different after all. Perhaps this fighting would end. It was all due to the magic of the holiday. Truly, there was nothing like the festive time of year to bring people together. Why, Archibald had half a mind to walk back over to the Germans' trench to see if they wanted to play football or sing more carols. But then, his commanding officer came stomping down their own trench. He looked around at his men. They were eating sweets, playing games. Didn't they know there was a war on? The gruff officer turned to Archibald, growling, You all still observing the truce? Then he picked up a nearby rifle, aimed it across no man's land, and fired. The English soldiers squinted across the field just in time to see a German soldier take a bullet to the head. His comrades immediately jumped into combat positions. The officer spat, handing the rifle to Archibald. There's your truce. Welcome to The Dark Side Of, a ParCast original. A show where we will delve into the seedy underbelly of pop culture icons and historical events. We aim to expose the ugly truth behind cultural moments and public figures we hold most dear, proving that there is always more to the story than meets the eye. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm Kate. Today is the fifth installment in our Dark Side of Holidays series. The holiday season may be seen as a time of celebration for many, but its saccharine exterior conceals many unpleasant truths. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. You can find all episodes of The Dark Side Of and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream The Dark Side Of for free on Spotify, just open the app and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. Now that we've officially moved past Halloween season, it's time to turn our attention to a new holiday. No, we're not at Thanksgiving just yet. 
Monday, November 11th, is Veterans Day. But it wasn't always known by this name. It was originally called Armistice Day, and it was supposed to celebrate the end of all war. But that noble intention has become twisted over the years. Now we have Veterans Day, which instead honors those who serve in the military. Ironically, we begin our discussion of this November holiday on Christmas Eve. It was December 24, 1914. Veterans Day had yet to be created, but a historical event was about to take place on the Western Front of World War I, the Christmas Truce. It might seem odd to begin a discussion of Veterans Day with an event that happened on Christmas, but the Christmas Truce is a prime example of mankind trying to derive a positive festive meaning from war. This misguided spirit would directly lead to the creation of Veterans Day. The fighting had begun the previous August after Germany invaded Belgium. For those who need a quick history primer, the so-called Great War was the result of a domino-like cascade of political alliances. Serbians assassinated Austro-Hungarian royalty, forcing the Germans to support the Austro-Hungarians, the Russians to support the Serbians, and all other nations to pick a side. The traditional methods of armed conflict, cavalry, line infantry, cannons, gave way to the horrors of trench warfare. Machine guns, mustard gas, aerial battles, and artillery came to bear against an unsuspecting world. The conflict took the lives of nearly 20 million people and injured just as many. And the conditions on the Belgian front were especially brutal. Both armies dug into miles-long trenches filled with mud and rats. Artillery shelling and constant rains meant that the trenches often flooded or collapsed. Constant standing water in the trenches rotted the flesh off of soldiers' feet. But in the modern day, this horror is often overlooked in favor of a heartwarming story about the two armies putting down their weapons and coming together to celebrate Christmas. It's an image so powerful that it has been immortalized by a statue in front of St. Luke's Church in Liverpool. The Guardian noted that this trend began around 1984, when authors Malcolm Brown and Shirley Seaton wrote Christmas Truce, The Western Front, December 1914. The book made the general public more aware of the truce. And this continued with a 2001 work by Stanley Weintraub, similarly titled Silent Night, The Story of the World War I Christmas Truce. The Amazon listing for that book reads, It was one of history's most powerful, yet forgotten, Christmas stories. It took place in the improbable setting of the mud, cold rain, and senseless killing of the trenches of World War I. It happened in spite of orders to the contrary by superiors. It happened in spite of language barriers. And it still stands as the only time in history that peace spontaneously arose from the lower ranks in a major conflict, bubbling up to the officers 
and temporarily turning sworn enemies into friends. It's an extremely saccharine message that the public has fully embraced. In December of 2014, British supermarket company Sainsbury's ran a television ad depicting the story in the most tear-jerking manner possible. The ad ends with two especially handsome actors, one British, one German, shaking hands, the British character generously handing over his chocolate bar to his enemy. The Christmas Truce was also portrayed on film in 2005's Joyeux Noël. That version of the story goes so far as to suggest that the event was a turning point in the war, thwarted by a hateful Scottish officer who arrives and single-handedly forces the fighting to resume. All of these portrayals highlight one tableau in particular— a scene of the Germans and English playing soccer in no-man's land between the trenches. There are full-size teams, referees, the whole works. However, there are scant few real-world references to this actually taking place, and the depiction of the game as a large, well-organized event doesn't really make sense. No Man's Land was full of explosion craters, barbed wire, and dead bodies hardly an ideal soccer field. On top of that, it's doubtful that a soldier happened to bring a soccer ball from home on the off chance that peace broke out. These details have likely been added to modern depictions of the event due to soccer's immense popularity worldwide. The idea of warring soldiers playing together is especially heartwarming to fans. Military historian Taff Gillingham decried all of these portrayals in an interview with The Telegraph. Note that, being English, he refers to soccer as football, as does most of the rest of the world. He says, I just think that it's an absolute tragedy that the old boy's history has been stolen by arrogant football barons. Football doesn't need promoting in 2014. The poor old fellows who took part in the truce Their history has been robbed this year just to promote football. The truth is that there was no single magical event that changed history, but many smaller events that took place all along the Belgian front. Tens of thousands of soldiers left the trenches and fraternized with the enemy that Christmas. They exchanged presents though this was a self-serving endeavor. The English soldiers supposedly had more cigarettes than they could handle. It made sense to trade for sweets or warm clothing. But they did sing songs, give haircuts, and yes, a few dozen may have kicked around a makeshift ball. While some had a Merry Christmas, others met a quick death. What the commercials, movies, books, and plays don't show is that there was still plenty of fighting going on. According to the History Channel, there were some British battalions that did not rise from their trenches upon hearing the Germans sing Silent Night. Instead, they used the opportunity to gun them down. So as some soldiers sat eating chocolate bars with the enemy, they could still hear the distant sounds of gunfire and artillery. At least 80 soldiers died that Christmas. 
Some soldiers use the opportunity to get close to the enemy trenches and make mental note of their fortifications and weapons. The entire Christmas truce story is also very British-centric, ignoring the fact that the much larger fronts in France and Russia experienced little to no truce. It was harder for these armies to make nice. It was their countries the Germans were invading, after all. Back on the Belgian front, various higher-ranking officers arrived within a few days to force the war to recommence. The Germans, in particular, sent snipers to harass the British from a distance and get them to start fighting again. In theory, that handsome English soldier from the Sainsbury's commercial would have most likely been shot in the head by his new friend just a few hours later. This is the true dark side of the Christmas truce. Though some battalions held out all the way to New Year's, eventually the fighting resumed across the board. The contrast between Christmas 1914 and 1915 was severe. During Christmas 1915, the British military leadership ordered a 24-hour artillery barrage to prevent another truce. As we mentioned, by war's end in 1918, nearly 20 million were dead. Author Mike Dash writes that it's possible that a majority of the participants in the Christmas truce were killed. With no precise record of who actually took part in the festivities, we'll never know. The Christmas truce is less a story of how humanity triumphed in the midst of death and destruction and more a depressing tale of how men could be so callous as to celebrate together one day and kill each other the next. The death toll did shake the world, and in 1919, most Allied nations declared November 11th, the day hostilities ended a year prior, Armistice Day. It was a way of remembering the horror, but also striving for peace. It was the supposed goodwill of the Christmas truce made official. That year, the United States celebrated their first Armistice Day, ceasing all business operations for two minutes to honor their soldiers who fought in World War I. It was a lovely gesture. Peace reigned. Everyone was sure that this meant happily ever after. But of course, this wasn't the case. Less than two decades later, a much deadlier conflict broke out. Armistice Day was going to need a new name. Next, we'll see how later wars transformed Armistice Day into Veterans Day. Now back to the story. We've discussed how the much-lauded 1914 Christmas Truce of World War I was not nearly as joyous and peaceful as is often depicted. But the spirit of that day was originally meant to be honored by an entirely different celebration. November 11th, Armistice Day. It's hard to imagine now, but when World War I came to an end, people all over the world truly believed that this meant an end to armed conflict for the rest of time. They couldn't imagine a war that was any worse. November 11, 1918 was a significant day in the pursuit of peace. 
This was the day that the Germans and Allies signed a formal armistice aboard the rail car of Allied leader Ferdinand Foch. But even this didn't officially mean the fighting was over. American Colonel Thomas Gowenlock wrote that many soldiers did not believe the fighting had truly ended. In fact, the armistice had to be repeatedly renewed every few months before a more formal peace agreement was made in June of 1919. So already we can see how Armistice Day was really just the beginning of a long peace process. At that time, the day was really just two minutes of silence ordered by then-President Woodrow Wilson. The first minute was meant to honor the fallen soldiers. The second was meant to show respect for their surviving loved ones. This momentary pause seemed an appropriate way to commemorate the most violent conflict in human history up to that point. Unfortunately, that solemn intent slowly transformed into celebration as parades and other festivities became a common part of the day. By 1938, Armistice Day was a federal holiday. Who can blame the Americans at this time for thinking that war was well and truly over? However, this was ultimately a willfully ignorant point of view, because there were plenty of signs to suggest that more violence was on the horizon. In fact, the first signs that another war would break out began all the way back in 1920. Part of the agreement of the Treaty of Versailles mandated that the German government pay 132 billion gold marks in reparations to the French, English, and their allies. This bankrupted the country and destroyed the German economy. The second well-known sign was the failure of the League of Nations. The League was the precursor to the United Nations that Woodrow Wilson spearheaded in 1919 and 1920. Wilson wanted to provide the world with a governing body that could peacefully resolve the types of issues that led to World War I. To his great embarrassment, he was unable to get the United States to sign on after rival Senate Republicans voted against joining. Without the support of the United States, now one of the most powerful countries in the world, the League had no means by which to enforce its policies. Nevertheless, a false optimism set in. In 1928, the League of Nations member nations and the United States signed the Kellogg-Briand Pact. This was literally meant to outlaw war, to say in no uncertain terms that World War II was never going to happen. Even Germany signed the pact. But all the nations involved seemed to know that it was an empty promise. In the United States, the pact was agreed to under the conditions that the nation still had a right to defend itself. It was also an inherently self-defeating proposition. If a nation broke the pact, what was the punishment? More war? The first test of the pact came in 1931 when Japan invaded China. Ultimately, the League of Nations did nothing to intervene. It was a terrible precedent to set. If a belligerent nation invaded a peaceful country, the consequence was nothing. 
This set the stage for one of the most evil regimes in human history. Adolf Hitler, a German World War I veteran, used nationalist rhetoric and visions of manifest destiny to whip his country into a frenzy. His Nazi party eventually seized power in 1933 when Hitler was named Chancellor of Germany. It was looking less and less like the promise of Armistice Day would hold. And the Germans weren't the only ones threatening that peace. The Americans, who were determined to be isolationist, were reneging on the promise of peace in their own way. Since 1929, the Great Depression had ravaged the world's economies, leading to mass unemployment, poverty, and starvation. In the United States, this meant that many World War I veterans in particular became homeless and couldn't fulfill their basic needs. They could never have imagined that they would survive years of violence in Europe only to be kicked out on the street back at home. In 1932, one group decided to protest. That July, 20,000 veterans marched on Washington. They formed various encampments nicknamed Hoovervilles, determined to wait until President Hoover provided them with aid. Instead, he sent General Douglas MacArthur in with troops and tanks to burn the camps to the ground. The veterans were hit with tear gas, a cruel reminder of the chemical warfare that had nearly killed them just over a decade earlier. Clearly, the promise of Armistice Day was coming to an end. How could America maintain peace if it was at war with its own veterans? Back across the ocean, Nazi Germany was growing in power and threatened peace at every turn. In 1936, they broke the Treaty of Versailles by militarizing along their western border. In 1938, they annexed Austria and Sudetenland. Ironically, this is when British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain gave his infamous Peace for Our Time speech. He claimed that he had spoken with Hitler personally, and he believed the Germans would stop their advance into Europe. Chamberlain's naivete was shared by people all over the globe. They couldn't accept that in the span of just 20 years, the world was once again on the precipice of a terrible war. A year later, in September of 1939, Germany invaded Poland. World War II began just two months shy of Armistice Day. This time, the war cost 70 million lives, including over 6 million slaughtered in the Holocaust. But even World War II wasn't enough to get Americans to give up on the false promise of Armistice Day. It would take another few decades and the end of the Korean War for Armistice Day to become Veterans Day. The name change was due in part to associations with the Korean Armistice Agreement of 1953. This treaty signaled the end of open hostilities between the North and South Koreans. But unlike the two world wars, the Korean conflict ended in a stalemate. Armistice was thus associated with defeat. Author Jack W. London wrote that Armistice now meant humiliation 
and its holiday was at an end. Without saying so, a campaign was commenced to stop honoring Armistice Day and to begin to honor our warriors. In 1954, Congress changed the name to Veterans Day. But the name change went beyond association with defeat in the Korean War. Veteran Madeline Misko writes that it was as though we no longer believed in that blessed moment of peace when all the arms would be laid down. We dedicated ourselves to honoring those brave men and women who still carry the arms for us, the ones we keep sending off to wars we don't fully understand and haven't the courage or the political will to end. This change marked a dark shift in America and the world. As the decades have worn on, the celebration and general aesthetic around Veterans Day has become increasingly militaristic, a celebration of the warrior rather than a call to peace. The holiday's goal became more about the honoring of soldiers whose work was now seen as not only inevitable, but vitally important to the safety and sanctity of the nation. Fascism, communism, and terrorism had to be constantly combated to preserve the United States. Freedom isn't free. In an article for The Guardian, American journalist Bob Garfield writes that he believes that some of the language surrounding Veterans Day serves only to enhance the cult of the military. He criticizes the unassailable image of the American soldier as serving the cause of freedom. Honoring Veterans Day means honoring soldiers, which means honoring war, the direct opposite of Armistice Day. Garfield points to a video from INSP, a conservative television network founded by a Christian ministry. The video depicts a little boy asking for a picture with a modern-day veteran, calling him a hero. The veteran then directs the boy to an older man at the bar, a Vietnam veteran, saying that the older man is a hero too. To be clear, there is absolutely nothing wrong with the main message, which is that Vietnam veterans deserve respect for what they went through. However, the hero terminology is what Garfield cites as being part of the movement away from striving for peace. If every soldier that fights in every war is automatically a hero, then that leaves no room for criticizing those wars, something that was key to the original spirit of Armistice Day. In a lengthy report for The Atlantic, reporter James Fallows suggested that refusal to criticize the military makes it less effective, costing money and lives. He writes, Outsiders treat the military both too reverently and too cavalierly, as if regarding its members as heroes makes up for committing them to unending, unwinnable missions. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt was always clear that war was something to be hated. He famously said, I have seen war. I have seen blood running from the wounded. I have seen men coughing out their gassed lungs. I have seen the dead in the mud. 
I have seen 200 limping, exhausted men come out of line, the survivors of a regiment of 1,000 that went forward 48 hours before. I have seen the agony of mothers and wives. I hate war. And President Dwight D. Eisenhower, who oversaw the invasion of France in World War II, also warned against the unwarranted influence of the military-industrial complex. He said, The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. These were two men who fought in wars at a level unheard of today. And they hated it. They thought it should never happen again. But the modern attitude toward military service and war is the opposite. The United States Army's recruiting website reads, Warriors wanted. Those armed with more than good intentions. Those ready to put ideas into action. To take their skills and hone them. To take their knowledge and apply it. To make themselves into a modern, ready, and unbeatable fighting force. This is accompanied by action-packed footage of the Army in action. Warriors Wanted is only the most recent iteration in a long legacy of modern armed forces recruitment ads that attempt to make war look exciting. It's true that propaganda has been used to recruit soldiers throughout human history. But the tone of ad campaigns, such as the famous I Want You posters of World War I and II, emphasize duty to the nation as a whole over personal glory. Task and Purpose, a military and veteran-focused journalism outlet, lampoons Warriors Wanted on their website, calling it a grossly inaccurate depiction of what it's like to go to war with the United States Army. Besides the fact that such ads ignore how extremely dangerous and psychologically damaging it is to fight in a war, they also neglect the more simple fact that serving in the military is often quite boring. That last point had attention called to it in a 1979 Saturday Night Live skit. A mock commercial for the Navy shows mundane tasks such as mopping floors, peeling potatoes, scrubbing toilets, and working in a cafeteria. The ad ends with the slogan, It's not just a job. It's $96.78 a week. Once again, the point is not to suggest that military service isn't valuable or honorable, but the American tendency to portray it as something mythical, something beyond criticism, is dangerous. In fact, it can lead to the glorification of war. And when that happens, sentiment meant to honor veterans actually ends up hurting them. Next, we'll see how Veterans Day became more pro-war than pro-peace. Now back to the story. We've discussed how the spirit of World War I's 1914 Christmas truce and 1918 Armistice Day eventually faded. Our new holiday, Veterans Day, is ostensibly meant to fill this gap, but it fails at that goal. Rather than championing peace, Veterans Day glorifies war and ignores the real problems facing veterans. And those problems are many. 
New Directions for Veterans writes that there are several key issues facing their community. It can be extremely difficult for returning soldiers to readjust to civilian life. There is no longer a rigid authority structure, no one to seek orders from, and no one to give orders to. Everything can seem mundane or even pointless compared to the veteran's previous job. They are no longer fighting for their life or to change the course of a nation. However, the biggest difficulty for some veterans is their mental and physical health. The Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration writes that 20 veterans die by suicide every day. They also report that veterans are twice as likely to die from opioid overdose as other citizens. They also suffer from high rates of PTSD and depression. In 2008, the Rand Corporation reported that 18.5% of returning veterans suffer from these diagnoses. Only 53% of those affected sought help. Even worse, only 57% of veterans reporting a traumatic brain injury are evaluated for one. There is a direct link between such injuries and PTSD and depression. These diagnoses can make it difficult for veterans to maintain a steady job, and some subsequently end up homeless. The U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs reported that there were about 38,000 veterans in 2018 who were homeless for at least one night of the year. Vietnam Veterans of America reports that 55% of those are 62 or older. Veterans Day does little to promote these issues. Instead, the focus is on showing excess respect and reverence to the military. Sports teams in particular are known for saluting troops during halftime, providing troops with tickets to games, and greeting them when they come home from a tour of duty. However, veteran Connor Narciso points to the 2015 revelation that this is paid patriotism. The armed forces spent $6.8 million to get these benefits for troops. This was all done under the guise of making the military that much more appealing to potential new recruits. It would be one thing if the sports teams did this of their own volition, but the fact that they are paid to do it speaks to America's cynical attitude toward the military. Indeed, it speaks to America's cynical view toward its veterans and armed combat in general. It's difficult for Americans to find an ideological cause behind many modern wars, and so they are not inspired to join the military. The cynical attitude toward Veterans Day extends beyond professional sports teams. Veteran Derek Coy writes that November 11th has become prime time for retailers to put on special sales events. But these retailers rarely give any of their profits to help veterans' organizations. And those who resist the call of this false patriotism can face consequences. In 2003, country music group The Dixie Chicks criticized the Iraq War and were pulled from many American radio stations. Americans wanted to show their support for the troops by rejecting any criticism of them. But the Dixie Chicks weren't anti-military. They just didn't believe the military was being put to good use in Iraq. 
This attitude contrasts with country music stars who sing in support of the troops without thinking about the subtleties of armed conflict. In 2014, comedian Bo Burnham satirized this kind of aggressive, performative patriotism with his character Chip McCap on the sitcom Parks and Recreation. The character was a country music singer with lyrics like, I'll bring the girls, you bring the beer, and the troops will bring the freedom. Burnham has called attention on multiple occasions to the hypocrisy of country singers who write songs about the troops without actually doing anything to help veterans. For reasons such as this, Afghanistan veteran Rory Fanning writes that, I get angry and frustrated with each Veterans Day because it's less about celebrating veterans than easing the guilty conscience of warmongers. Fanning is inspired by the attitude of author Kurt Vonnegut, who fought in World War II. In 1973, Vonnegut wrote, Armistice Day was sacred. Veterans Day is not. So I will throw Veterans Day over my shoulder. Armistice Day I will keep. I don't want to throw away any sacred things. Fanning explains... Armistice Day was sacred because it was intended to evoke memories of fear, pain, suffering, military incompetence, greed, and destruction on the grandest scale for those who had participated in war directly and indirectly. Veterans Day instead celebrates heroes and encourages others to dream of playing the hero themselves. Reporter James Fallows writes that the United States is more detached from its military than ever. While 10% of Americans served in World War II, less than 1% served in Iraq or Afghanistan. And many recruits come from poor rural areas where there are few career options. The military is thus often seen as something joined out of desperation rather than duty. This attitude oozes into the celebration of Veterans Day. Veteran Connor Narciso writes that Veterans Day can be surprisingly awkward for troops. Every combat vet I know is very uncomfortable with being thanked for his or her service. It may be polite to say thanks, but don't expect it to spark an honest conversation about war or our nation's debt to those who have served. Some veterans with similar outlooks call for Veterans Day to be changed back to Armistice Day. They ask that Americans strive for peace instead of trying to make more warriors. The dark side of Veterans Day is thus that it fails to actually honor veterans at all. Surely there's a better way to observe the holiday Former Veterans for Peace President Mike Ferner said, For just five minutes, be quiet and imagine peace. That's the least and maybe the most you can do on Armistice Day. But Americans can do more than just imagine peace on Veterans Day. There is much that can be done to improve veterans' benefits. According to military publication Task and Purpose, 
One of the major issues is that many veterans don't even know that there are mental health services available to them. Combat veterans can receive up to five years of health care, and non-combat veterans can receive up to a year of mental health care after discharge. But these benefits can be subject to many of the same pitfalls as any other American health care plan, such as accessibility and affordability. And it's made even more complicated by having to achieve a certain veteran status. Time served, whether your discharge was honorable or dishonorable, and whether your physical or mental ailments can be directly linked to your service, all factor into the type of financial assistance you receive. Some benefits expire after a certain amount of years. Others remain in effect for a lifetime. But even then, it can be a lifetime of arguing over co-pays and whether certain treatments are covered. There's also the question of quality. Patients worry whether they will receive the best care at a Veterans Affairs Hospital. Are the best doctors and nurses motivated to work at a government-funded hospital when they could be earning more elsewhere? The answer to that question seems to split veterans. A 2018 report from the New York Post shares horror stories of veterans waking up during surgery, an undiagnosed tumor, and four botched brain surgeries due to an incompetent VA doctor. Furthermore, a 2019 report from USA Today shows that wait times at VA hospitals are often up to two hours longer than at regular medical facilities. However, others argue that the VA actually outperforms other hospitals on average. The instances of poor treatment just rise to the headlines, as with any sensational news. Harlan Krumholtz, professor of medicine, epidemiology, and public health at the Yale University School of Medicine, writes that a huge benefit to the Veterans Health Administration system is that it is accountable to the government. Because it is a government agency, the VA is able to record data on how well veterans are being treated. If veterans' health care was entirely privatized, then no one would know if veterans were really getting the treatment they needed. Krumholtz also notes that if the issue is long wait times, then that is only because the VA isn't getting enough funding. More money would mean more hospitals and more doctors. It's a complicated issue but it speaks to how the sentimentality of Veterans Day does nothing to address the significant problems facing modern veterans. Perhaps if the spirit of Armistice Day remained, the emphasis would be less on glory and more on solving the fallout of war. Just as with any holiday, the dark side doesn't necessarily mean it should be done away with altogether. Veterans Day is rooted in good intentions, in a genuine desire from people to show gratitude and admiration for those who serve. But considering the degree to which that desire has supplanted actual concrete action, it may be time to rethink things. Clearly, the goals of Armistice Day have failed. Since World War I, there have been countless armed conflicts across the globe, from the absolute slaughter of World War II, to the intense standoff of the Cold War era, to the almost two-decade-long war in Afghanistan and Iraq. 
peace remains elusive. It's not something that any federal holiday can fix. But if the tone shifts from honoring war, if the world can move past the mythologizing of things like the Christmas truce and war in general, then perhaps that might be a start. As activist David Swanson puts it, the best way to serve veterans would be to cease creating more of them. Thanks for listening to The Dark Side Of. Next week, we'll continue our exploration of the dark side of holidays by delving into the deadliest holiday of all, Thanksgiving. You can find all episodes of The Dark Side Of and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like The Dark Side Of, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream The Dark Side Of on Spotify, just open the app and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. The Dark Side Of was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of The Dark Side Of was written by Greg Castro and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. <laughs>